This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Everyone, I think, has the obligation to preach the whole counsel of God. At the very minimum, that can be a piece of being like the prophets. And what you see over and over again in the prophets, they don't want it. They try to get out of it. Lately, it's become popular to talk about the need for preachers to be prophetic and to preach prophetically. But what does that even mean? I'm here today, Matt Woodley, with Monday Morning Preacher, and I'm here with Dr. Daniel Carol R. Rodas, who's the Scripture Press Ministries Professor of Biblical Studies and Pedagogy at Wheaton College, and he's also written a commentary on the Book of Amos published by Erdman's Press. And so, uh, Danny, it is great to have you on our podcast today. Well, thanks, Matt. It's good to be with you, and uh, you're a friend too, so this should be fun. I am really looking forward to this, and he's also a scholar on the book of Amos and the biblical prophets. And so, uh, Danny, let's just start a little bit with your personal story. So you have roots in Guatemala and the United States, and you've straddled both those worlds. So tell us just a little bit about that. Well, my mother was Guatemalan. I was born and raised in Houston. And my family, my mother made a point of raising us bilingual and bicultural. So I grew up speaking Spanish, and then we would go every summer to Guatemala to visit family. And sometimes my brother and I were there the whole summer, and we would stay in the capital city, and we had family in different parts of the country that we would visit and stay with. And then later on, I went to teach there, a seminary in Guatemala City for 13 years. So Guatemala has been a part of my life since I was a boy, and it's always been very much a part of who I am. So that's how I've always been able to straddle it, kind of move between both worlds in language and in culture, foods, all these different things, how we celebrate certain holidays, and all of that. And my wife did not have that background, but she has embraced it. So that's been, that's been wonderful, too. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with the church and the Lord. Just when did that start and when did that become real to you and alive in you? Yeah, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic. My father was the son of Irish immigrants and from Southern Ireland. Huh. And uh, he had a, a brother who was a Franciscan priest. Uh, one of his two sisters was a Dominican nun, so you can see that's pretty Catholic. And my mother was Guatemalan, so of course that was all Roman Catholic. So I was raised in that environment. And the Catholicism within which I was raised was more the Latin American type, which is a bit more medieval. Uh, than you see in this country. But it was in college that someone shared the gospel with me. I'd gone through some personal things. And I knew about Jesus. I had no questions about his deity. I had no questions about the Bible or God or sin or anything like that. Uh, the Catholic Church had actually laid all those foundations. But what was different for me was the idea that it could be a personal relationship. I never heard that part. And so it was in college that I, that I came to faith, personal faith. And I was going to a university in Houston, Rice University. Texas is very much the sphere of what's called the Bible church movement. And so I began 
at a Bible church and then went on to seminary within that same kind of movement, which was kind of independent, non-denominational kind of church. Very good pastoring and, and excellent preaching. And that was kind of what we did in Guatemala, too. But what happened, Matt, was that my wife also been raised Roman Catholic. I mean, she, much more in some ways than, than me. She grew up in parochial schools. So anyway, so when we went to the UK for doctoral studies, we went to a Church of England. And that's where we were introduced to Anglicanism of an evangelical sort. And it just, it was just wonderful. I mean, what, what we saw was the beauty of the liturgy within an evangelical framework, uh, a great pastor and preacher, wonderful, you know, Christian family. We got, you know, connected early on with a small group. After England, we went back to Guatemala for nine years, and then we moved back to the States. Eventually, in the city of Denver, where we were, we, we went to a, an Anglican church of the ACNA. When we moved up to Wheaton five years ago, that's how we found uh, the church where you're part of the pastoral staff and where we attend. So, yeah, so it's been a, a journey into... Um, trying to find the kind of church that can nurture our souls. And we have found the liturgy uh, to be helpful for that. Yeah, thanks. Well, so full disclosure, folks, Danny and I are friends. We do, we're part of the same church, but that's not why he's on this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a scholar, a first-rate scholar, and I really enjoyed his scholarship. Let, let's start with this, Danny. I know we're going to get into the the, the prophets and the prophetic stream, but let's just start with the Old Testament. Um, let's just back up the big picture. Um, you're a guy who sat under a lot of preaching. Um, you've preached yourself a lot. Um, so let's just get the lay of the land, according to Dr. Danny Carroll. What would you like to say about preaching on the Old Testament? Just got any thoughts on that in general? I would say do it. You know, I, remember, I remember before I came to Wheaton, I was at a seminary and doing kind of survey classes. You know, every semester I would ask students, how many sermons or did you hear a sermon on the Old Testament in the last year? And sometimes half or more had not. In a year. Wow. In a year. And some had never actually heard a oh sermon my. on the Old Testament. So the first thing I would say is just, just do it. Oftentimes, evangelicalism tends to be kind of an epistolary Christianity, mm. you know, kind of, and it's a certain set of Pauline epistles. It's Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Philippians. That's kind of the classic four. But the Old Testament is, is so rich in so many ways. So that'd be the first thing. It's just to begin doing it. I think a lot of pastors are a bit intimidated by it, by the cultural and historical backgrounds or the size of it, or the fact that it's different kinds of literature that they don't know what to do with, like narrative. They don't know what to do with narrative. I think, I think if we enter into the stories of the Old Testament and the emotions, the Psalms, lamentations, all these wonderful kind of pouring out of the people of God before their God, the stories which are so full of living characters that are real people, as well as very rich theologically. And in these days, which have so many social concerns, of course, the Old Testament is an incredible resource. So hmm. I, could, I could kind of wax eloquent on this for a long time, but that would, be, that would be just a starter, I would say. I, get to know your Old Testament and begin to appreciate it because you and your people need it. Yeah, and that is the Bible that Jesus used, of course. That is true. <laughs> and that is Paul's Bible, too. So, you know, they're always quoting the Old Testament and, and going back to it. 
And uh, we're we're starting Lent and Ash Wednesday soon in in our Anglican tradition. And uh, and Jesus in the wilderness, you know, what's he do? He quotes uh, Old Testament three times when he's tempted. Yeah, he yeah, obviously right. loved it. He knew it. He memorized it. He lived it. Yeah, that's really good. So let, let's talk specifically about the prophetic, the power of the prophetic. So you've written a commentary, a new commentary on the book of Amos. In a recent lecture you gave, you talk about the power of the prophetic text, but what does that even mean to be prophetic? What, what's at the heart of the prophet's message? To be prophetic is to speak, in the biblical sense, truth into the public square. Mm. Now, there's, there's kind of being prophetic in a general sense, you know, kind of in common parlance. And then there's prophetic in the sense of those who have been actually chosen to be prophets, who are very few, actually. That's not a happy choice often, ah. because if you're going to speak truth in the public square, that often is not welcome. To be prophetic, I think, is to, to speak truth in the public square. Uh, but it also will require, I think, a certain kind of integrity. Clearly, a knowledge of the world in which we live. The prophets obviously are very in tune with their social and economic issues. And then the other thing that you see the prophets doing is connecting all of that to the religious life of Israel. And especially in several prophets, tying it very directly into the worship so if you're going to be prophetic, you're going to be dealing not only with outside the walls of the church, but very much inside the walls of the church, even in its rituals, whatever they may be according to the denomination or the tradition which your hearers live and minister in. And that, that gets very uncomfortable because what it does is it means you rethink the purpose and the nature of worship itself. In the Old Testament, Worship was very much about remembering their history. It was very much connected to social issues. And what you begin to see uh, is the worship was designed, even within the family, to be formative. And so the, the idea was, how do you shape a people of a certain kind of set of virtues? How do you create a people of peaceableness? How do you create a people committed to justice? How, and what is the role of our liturgies? Um, during this year or at the end of a service, what have I done to shape my people? Hmm. Now, what happens, at least in the evangelicalism within which I was kind of raised in the faith and then, you know, visit and uh, spoken in, is that sometimes worship is about a show. It's about entertainment. You sit there and you watch. Is the music good? Is the preacher good? And then the question when you leave is, did you like it? Mm. Which is the wrong question. The, the question should be, is God pleased? Mm. That should be the question. And how are my people any different than when they walked in that door? Now, once you start asking those questions, it gets very uncomfortable. Because you have people involved in your worship team, for instance, that ultimately sometimes it's more about putting on their show, making sure that they get the number of songs that they were promised, you know, and if the preacher goes long, they get mad because if they have to finish at a certain time, that might mean they have to cut out a song and that's bothersome. And You're already having emotions and questions that should have no place in those serious kinds of questions. It'll determine your preaching calendar and should impact about how you put the word of God into people's hands 
and now oftentimes when I've been in churches, they'll have a Starbucks in the lobby, but no one has a Bible. They all walk in with their coffee. And so what you're seeing is something is wrong. How can a church service with no scriptures in anybody's hand, a short sermon of maybe 20 minutes, the elimination of Sunday schools, because people just won't come is the idea. And then you're you're just putting on a show and, and giving them a hot beverage. How is that formative? So you can see this could get to be a very uncomfortable kind of discussion. And it was uncomfortable for the prophets, too. <laughs> I sense you're being prophetic right now. Or just a bother, maybe. <laughs> I think Amos has gotten into you. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so... Danny, let's talk about in what way preachers might be like the Old Testament prophets and in what way they are not like the Old Testament prophets, okay? So let's start with how they, how preachers might be like the Old Testament prophets, Is there, or what we can learn from them in sense of like emulating them or um, being shaped or influenced by them. Yeah, I think, again, the first thing is to actually preach them. Hmm. Because yeah. you can be prophetic in the sense that you're actually preaching the prophetic word. <coughs> um, so one thing is to emulate their behavior. Another thing is to preach their message. Um, you know, there are going to be very few that emulate the behavior, <coughs> but the whole counsel of God. At the very minimum, that can be a piece of being like the prophets. The prophets are hitting outside and inside, so to speak, and being able to do that wisely, and this is where maybe you're headed this way, Matt, but pastors are pastors, they're not prophets. Prophets are very few and far between in the Old Testament, and they're not there to nurture a people. They're there to usually condemn them Hmm. because of their sin, especially the leadership of the country and the leadership of the religion in ancient Israel. And it's a very costly call. And what you see over and over again in the prophets, they don't want it. They try to get out of it. There are many examples of this, whether it's Isaiah. You know, he gets the call in chapter 6, and when he's given the message, you know, it's a message of doom. What Isaiah says, and I think it's in verse 11, he says, how long? How long do I preach this? And basically God says, until the war is over. I mean, Jeremiah doesn't want it. Ezekiel's complaining. Amos is, you know, this isn't, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. And God sends him into Israel, which is another country, a sister country. And then he's kicked out. I mean, so what you're seeing is they don't enjoy it because it's such a hard thing. uh, And the reception is never going to be good. But a pastor has another calling. You see, a pastor is to to build a people and he's there for the long term. Hmm. Uh, prophets kind of come in and out for a specific time and for a specific reason. So that's why I think, biblically, the prophets are, are going to be few and far between. But the pastors need to be many and long-term. Because they're not there to denounce and destroy. They're there to shepherd and to discipline if they have to. But they're there in the long-term to shape uh, the people of God into a holy people and a compassionate people, and that, that's a long haul. What do you think, as when we under-preach the prophets or when we ignore them, you, you've touched on this a little bit, but are there any other kind of core 
biblical themes that we are not covering from the pulpit if we fail to engage and preach the prophets? Very much so. And this is where I think the fact that the prophets hit so hard at worship tells you that worship needs to have the hard words sometimes. And there are expectations that God has for worship service. And again, uh, this is why the prophets are going in and hitting at the worship. Now, they're not, they're not saying you're doing the rituals necessarily wrong. The classic passage, if I can quote Amos, in, you know, in chapter 4, he has this fascinating, he says, go to Bethel and sin. Okay, You expect him to say, go to Bethel and sacrifice. And then he goes, yeah. and go to Gilgal and sin yet more. And then he says, you know, he talks about how they bring their tithes and these, these offerings. And if you look at it carefully, none of those involve sin. And then uh, he says, for so you love to do. Their religious services are basically somehow to meet their religious impulse. And then the thing that's so fascinating is in, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, they're all about celebratory kind of things. Thanksgiving. And then in verse 6, there's a wordplay in Hebrew, which you can miss in the English. But, you know, he said, you know, bring your, your offerings and your tithes. And then in verse 6, it begins, but I brought you, there's the wordplay, I brought you hunger, drought, failed crops, war. And what you're seeing is there's a total disconnect between what's going on inside the temple, celebration, and what's going on in real life, which is mm. all kinds of horrible things. And then he says something five times in that passage. He says, he had brought them all these things. And after each thing, he says, but you did not return to me. So all of these warning signs, which should have driven them to God, were ignored. And it was just about celebrating. Then at the very end of this, this would be in verse 12. If you were an ancient Israelite, you would think that you would meet God at the temple. That was just what your mindset was. But in verse 12, after he's gone through this whole thing, he says, prepare to meet your God. Which means that he wasn't there when they thought he was. And the God that they're going to see now is going to come in judgment, terrible judgment, even though they're incredibly religious. So what you're seeing is the threat is geared not only to what they do in their social life, the place where all of that should have been taken care of and trained and nurtured was the worship. And that's where God will attack. That's ultimately why he will destroy the temple. Because that's where it all begins. Most people go like right for Amos 5. Let justice roll down. You yeah. know? So let's get justice. And you're not, you're not downplaying that, but you're, you're going right for worship. Well, you know that where that, <clears throat> that's in verse 24 of chapter 5. Yes. That passage actually begins in verse 18, when he says, why do you look for the day of Yahweh? Why do you long for it? It's going to be a day of gloom and darkness, not light. And then you get to verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your solemn assemblies. And in verses 21, 22, and 23, it's all about the worship that he rejects the gatherings, the sacrifices, even the singing he rejects. And then verse 24 says, but let justice roll down. So even that passage is smack in the middle 
of what is unacceptable worship, because the worship should be generating the justice that he demands. Interesting. So let's talk about the the hope in the prophets, and let's talk about the Christological implications of the prophets. I mean, we every Sunday we worship a Savior who came and incarnated and lived among us and died for us and rose again and sent his spirit. So how does that all fit into the message of the Old Testament prophets? I would add something to that, Matt. Sure. When you go to the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, what you see is that Jesus is presented as a prophet. Hmm. He even says, who do, you know, when he turns to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And And the answer is they say that you are one of the prophets. And so what you see is that Jesus has a prophetic ministry. And when you look at what he does, where has he spent a lot of his time denouncing things? In the synagogue and in the temple. So you can see he's doing the same thing. He's in the prophetic pattern in his geography, if I can put it that way, and in his words and in his willingness to confront sin and to confront the misinterpretation of Scripture as he knew it. So what you're seeing when people say, Jesus is the fulfillment, okay, I go, okay, I can get that theologically, but you're missing a whole swath of things mm. about Jesus as a prophet himself. And in that sense, he's fulfilling the prophets, as well as predictions of the Messiah and stuff, which is where most people would go. They've missed this whole other thing that is very clear, especially in the Gospel of Luke. So I would say, how does Jesus fit into the prophetic message, I would say he incarnates it. Wow. That's... And just like he will actually say, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown, which is what he experiences, and he will die on the cross. So uh, you're, you're asking a whole different set of questions. Instead of trying to find Jesus in the prophets, yeah. which I appreciate, you're actually seeing Jesus as a prophet himself. And that's a different kind of discussion, and again, can be a very uncomfortable discussion. Because the kind of Jesus we often preach is a therapeutic Jesus, and Jesus uh, is a prophet, and prophets don't tend to be very therapeutic. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So, kind of flowing out of that, and I know you've touched on this a little bit already, but what would it mean? So, preachers, pastors are not usually prophets in a strict sense, but at times they're called to preach prophetically. Yes. What what does that mean? How, How would you counsel preachers? Like, how does that penetrate, revise, shape our preaching? So, you need to give them a diet within which the prophets are a part. Yes. But you can't make that the only thing that they consume, because your church will last about a month. Because people need a shepherd, and so you don't bludgeon your sheep. Now, a prophet will come in and bludgeon them because that's mm-hmm. what he's there for, and then he's gone. So I, I think to, to, to speak prophetically, it's, it's to put into their quote-unquote diet the prophetic, looking inside the church and then into the broader society. And what you see the prophets denouncing are some things that every society deals with, like exploitation of vulnerable people and the marginalization of the poor. And that is as old as time. There are some issues that we have to deal with that they did not because they really weren't cultural issues for them. Let me give you an example. In the ancient world, you see this, they recognized color, all right? 
So you see this in the Old Testament, some things they'll say about, we'll say Ethiopia, but it's actually Cush, which would be really modern Sudan more than Ethiopia. But they understand that Cushites are black, right? And they'll actually make some comments about this. But it's not a racialized coloring of people, okay? That is a more recent phenomenon. So you don't see, I mean, they recognize color, but it's, it's not a racial thing like we see it today. So there'll be issues that we will need to deal with that they never did. So what will carry over are certain ethical principles that we will need to extract and extrapolate into the modern conversation. And how to do that without being partisan is a challenge. You don't see the, the prophets being partisan. You know, they're not saying, well, let's go with this king and not the other one. You know, because what they are attacking is, is certain individuals, but ultimately the cancer is deeper. Mm. It's like in this country. You can change presidents, but there is a deeper cancer or a set of cancers in this country that are there no matter who's in office. But the cancers are there. So that's why you can't be partisan because it'll you start making excuses for your, your party of choice. And what I tell people is once you start making excuses for any party, something is wrong. Huh. But that's why you know, I, I have to be an independent. I, I, I can't negotiate away some deep gospel values for the sake of a political party. I, I just can't. Now I'm compromising. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. So let me ask you this last question, and we'll just make it wide open. And what would you like to say, you, you know, as a Old Testament scholar, biblical scholar, and I know you're training a lot of people going into ministry, and you've been involved in the church yourself for a long time. What, what word of challenge or encouragement would you like to give our listeners, our preaching listeners today? Yeah, I thought about that, actually. I think, and again, you're... you're in it more than I am, Matt, because you're actually in a pastoral role, and I'm not. But I think over the last number of years, the church has taken some big hits because of affiliations. Mm. And so now what we see among young people and minorities, I'm an evangelical, but what you see is um, people now avoiding the label or thinking, or trying to think of a new one. And what we find is young people questioning the evangelical heritage and structures, whether these are individual churches, denominations, traditions, and colleges, and seminaries. So the challenge for a pastor now is to lead his or her people through this time with enough wisdom and discernment to maintain the faith, even as it may need to be reframed away from the way it's been used culturally. This isn't the first time this has happened. This happens periodically in church history and has happened, has happened in this country periodically in terms of, of, of Christian faith, where the Christian faith has been compromised by race or by politics. This has been the story of the Christian church in this country since the, the founding fathers. Right? So um, it's always a messy time. So the, I think the challenge is to have the wisdom and historical depth to know how to guide the people and, and, and realize there's a bigger calling than a particular affiliation, which I see some people default to to defend when they should be defending the cross. 
Because it's a messy time, the pastor will need to be able to know what to preach, how to preach it, be patient enough with his young people and the older ones to, to guide them through this. And that's where you need the whole counsel of God. And that's where the prophetic idea can come into play because sometimes you've just got to speak truth. The challenge will be how to do it in constructive ways. You know, just not throwing the bomb in the room, let it go off and, and say, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> huh. As a pastor now, you've got to push the truth into, into the discussion, but you've got to lead people through it and with it to the other side. And yeah. that's going to be the challenge. It won't be fixed by changing the name, that that may be helpful. The thing that I've seen over the years is sometimes when you change the name, you begin to compromise on other things because what you don't want to be is unpopular. You know, those are the things that I'm sure pastors are dealing with all over the country. But So this is where the wise use of the prophets will be necessary, I think, uh, for the future health of the church. We need the prophets as a moral compass, and we lost it. And now we're beginning to pay the social price for having silenced and ignored the prophets. Wow. That is, that's prophetic, Danny. That was... Right? I mean, that was that was really good. Preachers, I'd encourage you, if you want to start somewhere, start with the book of Amos. Right, Danny? That's a good place to start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I preached two sermons from the book of Amos a few summers ago, and uh, I tell you, it's a brilliant book. Yeah. Just as, a liter- as, just as a piece of literature, it's brilliant, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a fascinating book. So the book that Danny wrote is from the Nicot series, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, the book of Amos published by Erdman's uh, under the author name M. Daniel Carroll R. Right? Get all your names in there. Yeah, the R is for Rodas. Uh, that's my Guatemalan side. In Latin America, you have two last names. Yes. Your second, If you're a male, your second last name is your mother's maiden name. That's right. Well, I love your just your Guatemalan and Irish heritage. Well, Danny, thanks so much for being with us on Monday Morning Preacher. Yeah, great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for joining in on this episode. And I, I just really encourage you, preachers, take up Dr. Carroll's um, encouragement, invitation, challenge, and preach the prophets. Preach the whole counsel of God. It's Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher. Thanks for being with us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.